Hey, thank you so much, Ben and worship team, and so good to see you guys again here this morning. Thanks so much for being here. I uh, really appreciate the, uh, the worship and the time together uh, with you guys, uh, what we're doing here this morning uh, at, at GPC. Um, hey, the uncomfortable truth for all of us, if you are someone who has said somewhere along the line in your life that you want to follow God, and in particular if you call yourself a Christian, the uncomfortable truth is that the God is always further ahead than we are. That Christ, in how he has carried himself and how he has walked before us, is always further ahead than we are. So the uncomfortable truth is that no matter um, how well we think we're doing and how much the Word of God is working in us or the Spirit of God is moving in us, there's always room for us to grow. This series, For God So Loved the Terrorist, The uncomfortable truth is that God's compassion outpaces ours most of the time. Most of the time, God is more loving toward people than I am. Most of the time, I have a good amount of room to grow in my compassion between where I am and where God is. That's going to be true most of the time. And this series really highlights this fact. In this series, we're now four parts in on a seven-part series in the book of Jonah in which we're trying to investigate uh, using this character of Jonah as a foil to see how is it that God works in the heart of someone who God wants to do something, but he's hesitant to do it. And why is he hesitant to do it? So where God's compassion outpaces mine, what then do I do? So we've been now three parts into the book of Jonah. We're now part four in a seven-part series in the book of Jonah. Um, called For God So Loved the Terrorist. And so far, if you've been with us at all in this study, so far we have seen the the movement of Jonah uh, in and through quite a a bit of activities. And what we said at the very beginning, in case you're just joining us for the first time this morning or hearing this online later for the first time, is that we are taking a popular children's story and we're asking adult questions about it. And in that process, um, we have said from from the beginning that There are some people who believe this story to be historical events and some who believe it to be an extended parable, and we had that conversation at the beginning. But what I'm trying to teach this book as is what I believe is the point of it, and that is the point at the very end of the book, and that is God is teaching this, I believe. The big question at the end, should I not have compassion? This drives the entire book, whether you consider it to be a historical event or a parable. To me, it almost doesn't matter because this is still the point. So we have found Jonah, just to catch you up, we have found Jonah... As a prophet who's been rebellious, and if you know the story, you know where we are. Jonah's been rebellious. God has said, please go to Nineveh. He said, basically, no, I don't think so. I'm going to get on a boat and go to Tarshish. I'm I'm going to get on as a a land-loving Hebrew. I'm going to get on a boat and go the opposite direction to Tarshish and get away from the terrorists who are the Assyrians who live in the capital of Nineveh. Like, I don't want to give them a second chance at your grace. I know that you may care for them, but I don't, and so I'm going to push against that. And so he goes, and you probably know the story, he gets on the boat to Tarshish, the merchant vessel, goes down into the cargo hold, falls asleep. Big storm, big, big storm comes and threatens to break up the vessel. The, soldier, the sailors are terrified. They cast lots and find out that Jonah needs to be confronted. He's the one who caused this. And so they say to him, what should we do so that we can stay alive? What do we need to do to you? And he says, man, throw me overboard because I know I'm the one who brought this calamity on you. And so they, with great hesitancy, they chuck him into the dark 
uh, ocean, and, and in no time he's gone from sight. The storm ends up calming down, and the sailors worship. Meanwhile, Jonah is whoop, swallowed by a big fish, and God's redemption and salvation comes to him in the middle of that. And not only the sailors worship, but then in the middle of the belly of the fish, then Jonah worships too. And that's where we were last week. And Jonah made a statement at the end of last week, at the end of chapter 2, that to me is so profound, it's so, so significant. He said, um, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. A very profound statement. If you don't have that verse memorized, consider memorizing that one because it's so significant. Because there are so many things in life that you and I just want to grab hold of that, that can clarify our identity or make our identity. And Jonah's saying, just be careful. Just be careful that you don't cling to worthless idols and forfeit the grace of God that could be yours as you're looking at the wrong things. So, now here's where we're at, and this is really significant. Jonah He's coming out of the belly of the fish, and God commands the fish to spit him onto land. Like, get rid of this guy. He's been in your belly for now three days. So Jonah, in a, if you imagine this, in a um, stream of vomit comes out of the fish. Now, how many of y'all ever clean up vomit? How many of y'all would like to have been in that stream of vomit that came out that you cleaned up? Right? I mean, we were flying home from Orlando, and there was this, this beautiful young girl in front of me, maybe three years old or so, and about an hour into the flight, this is how quick it went. She's like, <clears throat> and dad immediately reached his hand over, just his bare hand, that was all he had, and tried to do this, and like that worked for about one ounce of it, and the rest of it projectiled all over the place, and in about 30 seconds, the whole cabin of the whole airplane smelled like the acid coming out of the vomit. I mean, it was nasty. And what are you going to do? Open the window? You know, that's not going to happen. So it was really a, a tough deal. And so Jonah is coming out in this, and he's getting thrown out onto dry land. And so I don't know if you think about it that way, but this is what the story is telling us is happening. And we need to get real with this, that this is a nasty moment in his life. Like, where is a guy going to shower before he starts walking to Nineveh, all right? So here we go. We're in Jonah chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there to Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. We'd love to give that to you if you don't own one, because we believe the Bible is not only important, but is God's actual word to us, is authoritative and what we call inspired, that we can get to know God and connect with him through the word. So if you don't have a Bible, we'd love you to have one of those, okay? So Jonah, it's a small little book, four chapters, and what we call the Old Testament, um, about almost two-thirds of the way in in your Bible, but you can take a moment to find that. Jonah chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 1 with possibly the most um, famous second chance in history, or at least in biblical history. Beginning at verse 1, we're only going to go through verse 5. I'm going to stop verse by verse this morning just so you know that. I'm going to go in and out of each single verse. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Second time. So Jonah gets chucked out onto this land, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, we start with that because it's really significant. Because if you know the story, you already know this is one of the most famous second chances in history. That's not news to you. If you don't know that, well, then here you go. This is one of the most famous second chances in history. But we often just assume that. We know. But listen, most people don't get this. Like, most people in the Bible don't get the second chance. Adam, after he ate the fruit, God didn't say, man, Adam, I'm going to give you a second chance on that issue. 
Moses, when he struck the rock in anger in the, the history of the nation of Israel, God didn't say, Moses, I know you led my people so well, and I was just about to keep you from getting into the promised land, but I'm going to give you one more chance on the hitting the rock problem. Like, he doesn't get a second chance on that. I mean, Judas, right in the New Testament, he betrayed Jesus. Jesus wasn't like, I know you have regret. I know you're going to commit suicide after this thing goes down. I know you're going to regret this, so let me give you a second chance. Do you really want to do this? Like, most people don't get this clarity and this clear opportunity for a second chance. Jonah did. Now, this is also significant. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's worth going down this road for a minute. It's a little off my main point, but I want to go there for a minute. Jonah chapter 3 happens in the broader story of the whole book. If you remember in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is thrown overboard into the raging sea. If we could pause Jonah's life right there, if you could take that slice of life out of Jonah, and he is just thrown into the cold sea, and it's shocking to his system in the middle of a storm, you might ask the question, I might ask the question, is God present? Does God care? Now, we know the rest of the story, that ultimately, when God has Jonah thrown overboard, God still has Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 in mind. That discipline of chapter 1 is in light of and in preparation for the second chance of the grace of chapter 3. And so the discipline or the punishment period of Jonah's life is never done just because God enjoys watching people suffer, but this is in the broader story of God's redemption and restoration. And so if you find yourself in a position where you're being disciplined by God, Admittedly, this is difficult to identify whether this is discipline or just the way life works. But if God is disciplining, or you're going through a period where you feel like, as a result of my sin, as a result of things that I've done, I'm in a position where I need to deal with some consequences. But listen to me. God's character, even in the middle of discipline of chapter 1, is for the view of restoration of chapter 3. God is a good father, like we just sang. And good fathers don't punish for punitive damages. They don't punish for the joy of destroying their children's will or heart or soul. They don't punish for that. They discipline for the good things to come. And so just keep in mind as you interact with your own life experiences and deal with different difficulties in your life, you're serving a good father who, yes, at times can discipline and, yes, at times can punish but does so in chapter 1 with chapter 3 in mind. This is the heart of the Father. And so chapter 3 comes as an expression of a God who wants to give a second chance to a prophet, who is a God of grace even in the middle of the story of discipline in Jonah's life. And so the story opens in chapter 3, 1. He comes a second time. He gets a second chance there. And so chapter 3, verse 2, and here's the message to him. Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give to you. All right, so this is now the second time that Jonah has heard this request from God. First time he runs. This time, what's he going to do? And I'll also say, like, God doesn't give him the message to say here. God just says, go to the place, and I'm going to give a message to you. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but I want you to go. When you get there, I'll tell you what, what to say. Go and proclaim the message I'm going to give to them. And so, here's what Jonah does, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. All right. Good for Jonah. He 
changes his heart, and he's willing to go. He starts heading to Nineveh. Now, we've got to think about this for a minute, because many of you know the story well enough, but you've got to slow this thing down and, and push the pause, or maybe the slow motion replay on this thing. Um, slow motion replays are fun to watch, get to see things you don't normally get to see, and in a way, we've got to slow the action down on this one, too. Really, Jonah has just come out of a sea of vomit. Right? I mean, he's just been projectiled out. Now, maybe, well, what would you do? Maybe you would wash in the sea. I don't know. Do you have a, a relative? Or maybe there's a, uh, I don't know, a comfort inn nearby. You can get a room and get a shower. I mean, what are you going to do? You actually have come out of the innards of a large animal, which is rather disgusting. It's been totally black and dark in there for three days. Jonah, I'm sure, is completely disoriented, lost track of time, and he's now thrown out, and now God speaks to him. He's stinky. He's undoubtedly hot. He's undoubtedly sticky as well as stinky. And needing to decide what to do. And God says, go to this great city of Nineveh. And so here walks this small figure of a man walking toward Nineveh. Now some uh, Bible scholars would tell us it was about a day's walk from where he landed to the city of Nineveh. I, I don't know where he landed, so I don't know how you tell how long that is, but undoubtedly it's some period of time that he has to walk toward this big city. Now, you can just kind of imagine the movie scene for a minute. I don't want to romanticize this thing too much, but it is a significant moment. You have Jonah, it's kind of silly, this single solitary guy walking along the beach or whatever, coming out of the belly of the fish, totally strange, totally ugly looking while all this mess all over him. And then he cleans up, I'm sure, somehow. Gets on the way to Nineveh. Now Nineveh, it says in the text, verse 3, it's a significant city, a large city. I mentioned in the first message, Nineveh is big. Um, a wall, an outer wall of 55 miles in circumference. I don't know if you ever tried to put a fence around your property or seen some big fences around some acreage here. Imagine a wall that was 55 miles in circumference, including all kinds of farms and agricultural lands and all that. That's where he starts. And then the inner wall of the city is eight miles in circumference, but it's 100 feet high and 50 miles, uh, uh, 100 feet high and 50 feet wide. That's a pretty big wall. You have a single solitary guy walking up to this thing. You can almost imagine if the TV camera angle is behind him, small guy going to this big city, the music is playing in the background, You're like, what's going to happen? Small guy, stinky coming out of the belly of the, the fish, walking into this huge metropolitan area of the most successful city on the planet at the time. Going into, you name it, New York City, going into whatever it is, going into the big city and you smell like you've just been in the fish. What's going to happen? And here's the message that Jonah gets, verse 4. Oh, excuse me, a visit required three days. That's important, I forgot about that minor detail. What that means is you take the outer wall of 55 miles, the general rule of thumb is it could take you about seven, a day to walk 17 miles. So in order to get his message around the city of Nineveh, it's going to take him three days to do that. You just can't walk that distance in, in one day. All right. So here's the deal. On the first day, Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah started into the city, smelling like, you know, and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. <clears throat> In the Hebrew, it's five words only. 
Imagine that for a minute. <laughs> this, is, this is getting insane. This will become even more insane in a minute. This will become ridiculous in a minute. Five words. Here comes this little prophet walking into a city. Five words. Like, I'm not even going to tell you my name. Like, I would wonder, who is this guy? There's no, hey, by the way, I'm Jonah, a prophet of God coming out of the fish. Sorry about the smell. Nope. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. There isn't a clarity on, wait a minute, uh, why? What, 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 have we, what have we done wrong? What, what do you mean? Uh, can you tell me what authority you have to speak like this? Like, where are you coming from? Um, can you also maybe tell me, Jonah, why do we have 40 days? Like, what is that about? Like, what, you mean, can we think about it for a little bit and get together on this issue? Or do you, do you mean, like, we need to decide right now? Because you said 40 days, uh, you know, and who's going to enforce this? Now, I might say that I, I think, I don't know, because I'm not in Jonah's head, but I think that Jonah actually could speak this with some passion, maybe because he liked this message. This message is not a message of grace, really. It's a message of judgment. Now, there's room in there 40 days before this happens, but this this is just like finding your sibling doing something wrong that you know that mom and dad will get upset with them about. And you say, oh... 40 more minutes and dad will be home and you will be overturned. <laughs> like, that's kind of the spirit of it. Like, we just caught you doing something wrong and just give it a little bit of time and dad's coming, you're going to get in trouble. You, you burn the carpet in the living room again. You know, just wait, they're coming. Like, there isn't, I'm going to help you clean it up or let's talk about the issue or maybe dad will be gracious and I'll help you process. This is just simply 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, would you listen to somebody like that? Seriously? You're going, walking downtown Lancaster, first Friday, some fool is walking down the street, says, 40 more days and Lancaster will be overturned, and he smells like he's been in the belly of a fish, and he looks terrible. Kids, come on over this way, kids, come on, let's get away from this freak. I mean, Seriously. You walk into a large metropolitan area and you're declaring judgment. What do you think is going to happen? It is insane what happens next. It is absolutely, ridiculously insane. Now you, you, you know the story, but listen, don't let your knowledge of the story blunt the insanity of verse 5. It's craziness. Check it out in verse 5, chapter 3. The Ninevites believed God. And they declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That is crazy. I mean, it's like, number one, it's like staccato kind of recording in the text. Like, the Ninevites believe God. Like, there's no further clarification. The Ninevites just believe God. As if that would be the first response to this kind of message. Are you kidding? Like, think about this for a minute. The the Ninevites believe God, and, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, declared a fast and put on sackcloth. Think about this with me for a minute, if you can, okay? We're going to slow this down and think about this. You're talking about the, the people who have the greatest power right now in the known world. Like, their capital on the first day in which a freak out of a fish came in and said 40 days and you're going to be overturned, 
all of them stopped and believed God? The people who take their cue from their king, the king who gives the commands as to what they can worship and who they can worship. So you're telling me that all of the rulers who make the laws, who enforce the king's commands, they are the greatest. And you're telling me on day one, by the way, it takes three days for a message to get through the city. And on day one, the message gets through the whole city. And everybody in the city, including the rulers who make the laws, whose lives are at stake if they do anything against the king, they help to lead a national confession on day one. They give up centuries of Assyrian belief, and they get rid of all of those gods, and they turn in a fast and sackcloth to this guy walking down the street saying five words that this place will be overturned. We don't know who he is. The rulers put their lives at stake. Are you telling me that all of the teachers and the philosophers in Nineveh at the time who are leading all these classes on Ninevite belief and who we are as a people, they stop their classes and they say, whoa, we were teaching the wrong thing. Hold on. None of this is true. We need to repent. And believe in God today. Like, let's stop class right now. We're going to participate in a fast and put on sackcloth. Are you telling me that the grandparents who want so badly for their grandkids to hold on to the beliefs that they lived with, that on that day, in that moment, the grandparents say, wait a minute, everybody, hold on. We were wrong. We've been worshiping the wrong God. We now believe in this God of the freak fish guy coming down the street. Like, that's what we now believe. And we want all of you to believe that. And are you telling me that's what happened? Are you telling me that the soldiers who put their lives on the line, who went after the decree of the king to to slaughter people brutally, they all said in the middle of boot camp and all their generals and all their lieutenants and all their commanders on day one were like, hold it! We need to believe God. Stop. We're going to declare a fast and put on sackcloth because God is here. And 40 days we're going to be overturned. We better stop today. I'm telling you, this is insane. This is ridiculous what is happening in verse 5. That an entire city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the heart of the empire, would stop on day one before the message can even get to the whole city and stop and declare a fast and put on sackcloth in repentance. This is insanity. This is insanity. And yet this is what the Bible records happens. They all believed God. From the greatest to the least, on a five-word statement from a prophet who smelled like a fish, who looked terrible. Now, here's why I think this is so important. This story is told over and over and over and over and over again, from generation to generation to generation to generation. It's repeated constantly. And I can just imagine 
a Jewish mom and a Jewish dad raising their little Jewish children, putting them to bed at night. Little Junior has a tough day. And mom or dad is like, you know what story we're going to tell tonight, Junior? Let me tell you about Jonah. Let me tell you about Jonah. Let me tell you about what happened on this day when this prophet of God walks into a city an entire structure is blown up on one day when a whole city and all these people turn to God. You know why they would have told that story to little Junior? Here's what I think. Because here's the lesson I think they would want their little juniors to get. And here's why I think this story is even here. Junior, just because they're your enemy doesn't mean that they're God's enemy. Junior, just because the people around you that you hate mess with you, just because the people around you are your enemy, just because people are giving you a hard day, buddy, it doesn't mean that they're God's enemy. Like, look what happened to the Ninevites, Junior. Like, I know that they've offended you. I know they called you a name on the playground. I know that they bullied you at school. I know that you have a right to be offended by them. And I know that if you could call down judgment, you would, because they've wronged you. They were foolish, you're right. But Junior, (laughs) just because they're your enemy doesn't mean that they're God's enemy. Just because the people in Nineveh are your enemy, Jonah, it, it doesn't mean that they're God's enemy. In fact, let me drive this home so far to tell you a story about a city, not just where one enemy repented. But this is such a ridiculous, I mean that in a good way, such an insane story. It goes so deep and it's meant to push you so hard in your thinking like even you were, I hope, this morning. Like, can that seriously ever happen? The point of the story is, yes, it can because this is how far God's love reaches to our greatest enemies. That is why it is so important Just because they're your enemies, just because you don't like them, just because I don't prefer them, come on. It doesn't mean that God feels the same. In fact, to drive that point home, let me tell you about the day when God threw up an entire city, their background, their religion, their administration, their military might, their education system, everything, where he threw all of that up in a day, and they gave it up, all of these people all of whom you'd say were an enemy. But listen, God loves them so much that he's willing to draw them out of that on one day. And it's so crazy. It's just crazy to think about that. It's absolutely crazy to think even in our own small town, just of our little community where we live, imagine just your community of a couple thousand people maybe turning like that. Can you imagine that? It's crazy. Here's the capital of Assyria. And God, I believe, has this story included in the Scriptures to drive this point home. Think about the insanity of this. And God doesn't blink an eye because His love and grace reaches so much farther than mine. And this is the uncomfortable truth. If I say I follow God, there's always going to be a gap between man where I am and where God is. And when God's compassion outpaces mine, how do I react? And so here's the question. When God's compassion outpaces mine, what, what do I do? 
If I'm in the room watching little Jewish mom and dad tell Junior a story about the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah, and they get to this point, I'm going to ask, what do you do? How would you counsel your little son about how to act and what to do? And I'll say this. Jonah's model in Jonah chapter 3 gives us clarity. What did Jonah do? Maybe halfway unwillingly, but what did Jonah do? Did Jonah move toward his enemies or from his enemies? Like, did Jonah take the message to the people that he hated, or did, did he not? See, this reminds me, it provides echoes of and shadows of what Jesus said in the New Testament. A profound statement that we often hear but like fail to really apprehend. Jesus made this incredible statement. Love your enemies. No one was saying that. Love your enemies. Pray for the people who persecute you. This fundamental teaching is woven throughout the Old and New Testament and is woven into the, the fabric of what it even means to be Christian. Anyone can love those who love them. Even the unbelievers do that. That's what the Bible teaches. But you want to reflect the Father heart of God? You want to be someone who grows in compassion? First of all, remember, just because you don't like them doesn't mean that God doesn't love them deeply. That's a hard lesson, number one. Number two, what does it look like for me to move toward the people that I would prefer to move from. Where Jonah moved from in chapter 1, he moved toward, maybe reluctantly, in chapter 3. And so when God's compassion outpaces mine, who do I need to move toward? For many of us, to be honest, it often starts with the relationships that are closest to us. It often starts with a spouse, if we're honest. It often starts with a family member easily moves into people we go to school with, people we're on a team with, people that we work with, people in our extended family, leaders in our community, leaders at work. Like, who is it? Who is it that I feel like, you know, I, God might actually love them? After all, maybe. Just a little bit, possibly. It extends also beyond the church. Extends to people who have right now, if they were to die, without having expressed faith in Jesus Christ. Christians believe that if you die without having expressed faith in Christ, that you go to hell, that this is part of the Christian faith. And people who, who live life without that worldview of um, believing in Jesus as their Savior or believing in the Scriptures to be, be true will make decisions, moral decisions, that can be offensive to people who do believe in Jesus and who do believe in the Bible. And we can have a tendency to keep our children from them. We can have a tendency to pull ourselves away because we don't want this defilement is a Bible word that some people use. And I'm just going to ask the question on all of that. Like, where would God have us move as parents? Where would God have us move as spouses? Where would God have us move to love well those whom he loves, whom we might not even like? Because if the story in Jonah chapter 3 is true, 
and it's included in the scriptures. If the story is here and God reaches so far into the capital of a pagan city and on one day blows it up, come on. What enemy of God can I put before him and say, God, I don't think this one has a chance. I can't, can't do that. So when God's compassion outpaces mine, what do I do? And here's what I think little mom and dad would say to Junior when the end of their nighttime routine. Junior, you know why this story is here? You may or may not be able to change the world. But you can. You can show the love of God to the people around you, even to the people that you don't even like. Because just because you don't like them doesn't mean that God desperately doesn't love them. Because he made them in his image. So Junior, as you go back to school tomorrow and face that kid who's been a jerk to you, remember the city of Nineveh. They were a jerk to a lot of people. But God reached in a hurry and deeply to save them. Just because you don't like them doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. And so move toward them. Move toward them. Take a step. Now, the story of Jonah chapter 3 continues in the last part of the chapter in which we see really the why as to why God would do something like this because we see the power of repentance in play. And that we will see next week when we finish Jonah chapter 3. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Word of God. I I pray for us this morning as we interact with it and see again a story that many of us know or are familiar with at least. I pray that you would remind us of the depth of what really happened in Nineveh, the significance of this story and how it's told to make this incredible point just beyond reason, beyond our ability to understand. It's so crazy. I pray that when we see the people around us who we are inclined to dislike, to walk from, you'd remind us of this crazy story of the city of Nineveh. And this is your movement. You reach to people. Now that you can, in a heartbeat, change not just one heart, but an entire system, a nation at its heart. It's crazy to think about the kind of love that you have for people. So far beyond ours. So Father, when your love outpaces ours, which it does, and your compassion outpaces ours, which it does, help us to follow your lead and move toward the people in this life that we may not even like, but that we know that you love. Give us courage to do that for the times when it's just so difficult. Lord, we know you can do incredible things. You can move the mountains. You can move the the seas. You can move all of this. And so work in us to give us courage to believe, have faith, and have trust. You know what you're doing. And we need to follow your lead. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name.